we're just continuing on in our um, study of church membership or what every member, I kind of think maybe just what every member should know. Maybe I should have titled the class what every church member should know. And uh, we've covered so far the uh, brief history of Baptist, what it is that, that constitutes a Baptist, and we covered that moving out of the Protestant Reformation forward in really broad survey form up until this present time. And then we talked about the importance of church membership two weeks ago and why, why I believe that church membership is biblical and also why I think that every person who's a Christian should be a covenant member of a church body. You should, I believe that that's biblical. I believe that all of us should be members of a church. And now we're going to move sort of forward from there into our doctrinal position as a church and where we stand doctrinally. So over the next several weeks, over the next six weeks, I guess, including this week, we're just going to cover the, what we believe as a church. What are the doctrines that we hold to as a church? And it's important that I tell you right from the beginning today what my goal is over the next six weeks is I give you a whole lot of information and I share with you all the things that we believe or the doctrinal positions that we hold as a church. My goal is to tell you what we believe, not why we believe it. Uh, I hope you understand that because if, if, if this was a class on why we believe, we'd probably, like today we're going to be dealing with the issue of the Bible and our view of Scripture. If, if this was a class on why we believe the Bible is the Word of God and how it's trustworthy and why we believe it's trustworthy, we'd probably have to spend six weeks on that alone. So my goal isn't to give you an explanation of every single doctrine and why and all the nuances of it. My goal is just to tell you what we believe, and I know that probably in this group of people, we all are on probably a very similar page, but if there was someone in here that had a huge disagreement, this really isn't the place for us to do that. Like, I'm just going to tell you what we believe. I'm not interested in convincing you necessarily. We can do that in my office on a Monday or Tuesday together, Uh, but for the sake of the class and moving things along, I just want to tell you what we believe. And so today we're going to start by talking about our view of the Bible. And it's important that we start here and we're going to spend probably a little bit more time on the Bible than we are on the other doctrines. Not because like next week we'll be dealing with our doctrine of God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the Trinity, all of that in 40 minutes. It's not that the Bible deserves more time than that. It's just that every other doctrine that we hold to comes out of the Bible. And so it's important that we first sort of build that foundation of why, why we believe in the Bible. Why is the Bible so important to us? We know we don't hold our doctrinal positions based on personal experience. We don't hold our doctrinal positions based on church traditions. We hold our doctrinal positions because of the Bible. They come out of the Bible. And we are a people of the book. We really are. And I want to talk about that for a few minutes this morning before we get to this big mouthful behind me, I want to talk to you about the importance of understanding, as Southern Baptists in particular, why this is an important issue for us. Because in the 20th century, uh, what began to happen was that most of the mainline denominations, Southern Baptists included, by the middle of the 20th century had started to really drift into a liberal position, a very liberal position where people were beginning to deny uh, the uh, the authority of the scriptures, where people in the Southern Baptist Convention, our leaders and in our seminaries, were beginning to question whether or not the scriptures were true, 
They were beginning to teach openly that some of the things in the scriptures weren't inspired, that they weren't infallible, all these things. And it seems strange for us to think about that, I think, in our churches, because probably for most lay people, they never experience that. The lay people in the churches almost always stay on the conservative side, and it's the leaders in these denominations and the seminaries that tend to go more towards the liberal side. And so by the end of the 1950s and leading into the 1960s, the Southern Baptist Convention was really moving in a direction, like all the other denominations, towards a really liberal stance on the Bible. And by early 1960s, they, they, they kind of reached a breaking point when one of the seminary professors from Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary wrote a book, and, and the Southern Baptist publishers, Broadman Press, published the book. And in the book, he said things like that Adam and Eve weren't real people, that that was a, a, just sort of an allegory for humanity, that the flood was not uh, as described in the Bible, that Sodom and Gomorrah weren't judged by God, that they were destroyed just by natural disasters and things like that. And they published, this is one of our seminary professors, supported by the money of our churches, who was publishing a book through the Southern Baptist Convention's publishing arm. So that's where we had arrived at in the 1960s. And then that sort of started the controversy. And in 1963, they revised the Baptist faith and message to address the Bible. And the conservative base of the convention voted to to add or to change the Baptist faith and message to say that the Bible had truth or was truth without any mixture of error. That was added in 1963 to our Confession of Faith. But there were also some other things in there that didn't quite go far enough, and it didn't address the problem in the seminaries. And you know that in the seminaries, what happens in the seminary eventually bleeds into the pulpit of the churches, because that's where your pastors are coming from. And they started to do studies, and they were saying things like that in the 1960s, about 90% of the men who would enroll at the seminaries would say without a doubt that the Bible was the Word of God. By the time that they graduated, three or four years later, that number would be down to about 60%. Uh, The same thing with about 90% of the people coming into the seminary were saying that Jesus was the only way to be saved, and by the time that they graduated from the seminary, only about 60% of them believed that. So people were going to our seminaries, and, and they were actually losing their faith from what they were being taught in the seminaries. So you have this sort of leaning towards the left on the issue of the Bible. And there were other issues too, like in the 70s, the convention um, even passed language at the um, annual meetings supporting things like Roe v. Wade. That's hard to think about, isn't it? Like, like that our convention, the Southern Baptist Convention would have done, taken positions like that. But there was this really hard bend to the left. And, and so in the 1970s, a group of guys got together small group of guys got together and decided that there, there needed to be a battle for the Bible in the Southern Baptist Convention, that we needed to fight for the Bible. And they came up with a way of doing that by essentially working through the government of the Southern Baptist Convention. Now, this is important as well. A few weeks ago, we talked about the government of our churches and how do we believe that our churches are governed. Y'all remember? Congregationally, right? So it starts with the people and it... And, and everything moves upward from there. And it's the same way with our convention, with our denomination. The president of the Southern Baptist Convention has basically no power over the churches. It's the churches, you guys, the people at the churches that are the most powerful people in the convention. 
But the one thing that the Southern Baptist Convention president can do is nominate one single committee, or appoint, rather, one single committee. And for those of you who have been in Baptist churches long enough, you'll laugh at this name, and I chuckled. I served on this committee about 10 years ago. It's called the Southern Baptist Convention Committee on Committees. <laughs> it's, but it is an important committee because what the Committee on Committees does is it nominates the nominating committee of the Southern Baptist Convention. I know this all sounds strange. And then the nominating committee of the Southern Baptist Convention then nominates trustees of the Southern Baptist Convention trustees of various entities like the seminaries and the Ethics and Religious Liberties Commission and those things. And then those trustees are responsible for hiring the heads of those institutions who are in turn are responsible for appointing and hiring staff of those institutions. You get where that's going? So they decided that the way to change the convention and fight the battle for the Bible was to elect conservative presidents who could appoint conservative members to the Committee on Committees, who would then nominate conservative people to serve as trustees or on the nominating committee who would appoint conservative trustees who would eventually appoint conservative pre- presidents of the seminaries and entities who would eventually appoint conservative people to those positions. And so over a span beginning in 1979 with the uh, election of Adrian Rogers, you remember that name? Anybody? No? Holy cow, you guys are so much less Baptist than I thought you were. He's like a pope of the Southern Baptist Convention. Adrian Rogers, anyway, was the um, first conservative president of the Southern Baptist Convention, elected in 1979, and that process lasted through about the mid-1990s. Now, I don't mean that we stopped electing conservative presidents. We still elect conservative presidents, but the resurgence, what it was called the conservative resurgence, lasted from about 1979 until 1994, which was when the last conservative president was appointed to Midwestern Baptist or to Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. And at that point, sort of the takeover was complete. And now everybody who teaches or holds a position in the Southern Baptist Convention has to affirm the inerrancy of Scripture. You can't teach in a Southern Baptist Seminary You can't be on staff in a Southern Baptist seminary. You can't teach pastors and missionaries. You can't serve as the head of entities or trustees of boards unless you affirm the inerrancy and infallibility of the Bible. The defining hallmark of being a Baptist, and I say all that to say that the defining hallmark of being a Baptist and the defining hallmark of being a Southern Baptist in particular is that we are people of the book. Like we are known by other denominations as people of the book. I mentioned on Wednesday night when we were doing our study, I asked everybody to turn their Bibles to a certain passage of Scripture, and as we were turning, you could hear all the pages of the Bible turning, and I I joked that there's a a famous theologian who's Presbyterian who anytime he would speak at conferences and he would ask people to turn in their Bibles to a certain passage, as the pages were turning, he would say, ah, I can feel the Baptist air conditioning. And, he, and that's because we, we've become known as people of the book, that, that we carry our Bibles, that we read our Bibles, that we fought the battle for the Bible, and that the Bible is important to us. And so that's where our confession of faith begins, with a Baptist Faith and Message 2000 and, and any other 
historic Baptist confession that you can go to, including the 1963 confession, the 1923 confession, and the 1689 London Baptist confession. They all begin with a statement about the Holy Bible, the scriptures, and what we believe about the Bible. And so behind me, and I'll move out of the way so y'all can read along. Behind me is the first article of the Southern Baptist Convention's Statement of Faith, which is also the statement of faith that we hold to in this church, that we affirm in this church, the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. And it just says this. It says, The Holy Bible was written by men divinely inspired and is God's revelation of himself to man. It is a perfect treasure of divine instruction. It has God for its author, salvation for its end, and truth without any mixture of error for its matter. Therefore, all Scripture is totally true and trustworthy. It reveals the principles by which God judges us and therefore is and will remain to the end of the world the true center of Christian union and the supreme standard by which all human conduct, creeds, and religious opinions should be tried. All Scripture is a testimony to Christ, who is himself the focus of divine revelation. So that's Article 1. That's where we begin when we begin talking about the Bible. And I'm not going to write these on the board because I don't feel like it and there's not much room anyway. But if you're taking notes, I'm going to give you five words uh, that, that are important to us when we talk about our doctrine of the Bible. This is what we believe as a church. First of all, we believe that the Bible is inspired by God. And that comes out of the Scriptures. We know that, that in Paul's letter to Timothy, he said that all Scripture is inspired by God, or it's God-breathed. It's given by God. So we believe that all Scripture is inspired by God. And I'm going to read some statements to you, and I'd be happy to give you these notes if you'd like them, um, so you don't have to take notes, or if you want to look at the larger documents I'm going to quote from. But I'm going to read to you from... The commentary on the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy uh, from 1980. And there's a commentary on each of these things. And under the section of the inspiration of Scripture, it says this. It says, We affirm that the whole of Scripture and all its parts, down to the very words of the original, were given by divine inspiration. Did y'all get that? That we affirm the whole of Scripture and all its parts down to the very words of the original were given by divine inspiration. That's really important language. That's what we would say is what we believe is verbal plenary inspiration. And that means that we believe two things. We believe that all Scripture is inspired. That's plenary. It's all given by God. And then we believe that verbally, It's given by God. In other words, we believe that every single word of the Bible is inspired by God. So it's not just some parts. Like some people would say, well, the Bible is inspired in the sense that it teaches us about what we need to do to be saved. But it's not really inspired in the sense that it tells us about historical events. You ever heard anybody say something like that? Or maybe you've had questions yourself about that. Do we believe that it's just the... the, the story of the Bible or the message of the Bible that's inspired, or do we believe it's the actual words of the Bible that inspired? Well, we would say that our position is both. We believe that the words are inspired, which lead us to the content and the story and the message of the Bible being inspired. The very words of the Bible 
are inspired. And you can see that in the statement of faith. I bolded these out so you can see where, you, where they show up in the, in the article. So we believe, first of all, that the Bible is inspired. Secondly, we believe that the Bible is inerrant. Inerrant. Because these are all words that are sometimes used interchangeably, but they all speak of different, subtly different things. And you can see that there in that second block of green where it says it has God as its author, salvation for its end, and, and here's inerrancy, truth without any mixture of error. And so here's the statement from the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy, which says, We affirm that inspiration, though not conferring omniscience, guaranteed true and trustworthy utterances on all matters which the biblical authors were moved to speak and write. Basically, that they were inspired, and when they wrote what they wrote was absolutely true without any mixture of error in it. So we believe that everything that they wrote was true. It has no error in it. Now, the third word is, again, closely related, is infallibility. Infallibility. Therefore, all Scripture is totally true and trustworthy. It's trustworthy. Here's another statement. We affirm that Scripture, having been given by divine inspiration, is infallible, so that far from misleading us, it is true and reliable in all matters that it addresses. And that last statement is, is important as well because what we're affirming is that the Bible is true and trustworthy in every matter that it addresses. Now, does the Bible address every matter that you'll come across in life? Well, somewhat. We call that God's will of disposition. We've talked about that. Close, Tina. But does it like... Like, the Bible doesn't tell you specifically about what you're going to face tomorrow. It doesn't tell you specifically about whether the light's going to be green or red when you reach. You know what I mean? It doesn't tell you everything. But what it does tell you is absolutely true and reliable. Everything that it does tell you, we believe, is true and reliable. So, in that sense, it's infallible. And then we would say that it's authoritative. The Bible's authoritative. And you can see that down in that, this box here, where we say that the Scriptures are the supreme standard by which all human conduct, creeds, and religious opinions should be tried. It's the supreme standard. Here again is a statement from Chicago. It says, We affirm that the Scriptures are the supreme written norm by which God binds the conscience, and the authority of the church is subordinate to that of Scripture. And we deny that the church creeds, councils, or declarations have greater or have authority greater than or equal to the authority of the Bible. Now that's the Protestant position that's specifically spelled out there in its denial to counter the Roman Catholic position, which is that Scripture is authoritative, but what else is authoritative? The Pope or the church, tradition. The Pope can, can make a statement or the church can formalize a creed and that those things are as, as weighty for the Catholic Church, for the Roman Catholic Church, as is the Bible. But we would say that the only authority, the final authority, and the only authority that we have to judge our behavior, our action as Christians, the way that we conduct ourselves in the church, is the Scriptures. It's the only final authority. And then lastly, in that statement, we say that all Scripture is a testimony to Christ, that all Scripture ultimately points to Christ. And you remember from the end of the Gospel of Luke, when there's two disciples, 
walking on the road to Emmaus. You remember this? And, and they're walking and they're talking about all the things that have happened. And Jesus slips up beside them and begins to talk with them. And they say, uh, how is it that you're not heartbroken? Don't you know what's happened here? Don't you know what happened? We thought this Jesus was the one who was going to come and restore the kingdom. And they're just going on and on. And Jesus says, eventually he opens the scriptures and it says in Luke chapter 24, verse 27, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So all the Bible, beginning with Moses, so that's beginning with Genesis, moving through all the scriptures. And of course, at the time, there was no New Testament. But we would say that leading out of that and into the New Testament, that nothing changes. It all ultimately points us to Jesus. So we believe that the Bible is inspired, inerrant, infallible, authoritative, and Christ-centered. All right, I want to move on to just answer a practical question. And we've dealt with this before in this class, but I don't think that all of us were in the class. And I want to deal with the issue of translations and what translations we use and what translations are trustworthy. Because we have so many translations nowadays that it's hard, I think, for us to decipher which is the best one, which is the right one, which one's good, which one's bad, are some good, are some bad. And so I thought that it would be a good time for us in the next 10, 15 minutes to have that discussion because I know there's a lot of questions about that. If you guys don't ask me questions about that, I'll be shocked. Or if you don't have questions about that, I'd be shocked. Which translations are the best ones? And, and this is a relatively recent phenomenon for the church because up until really about the 1970s or so, this wasn't even an issue because from the... 1600s forward, everybody was using one Bible. But then we started getting different translations. We got the NIV, which sort of took the world by storm, New International Version. And then following on the popularity of the NIV, then we just started to get a whole bunch of different translations of the Bible. New Living Translation, the New King James Version, which was just an update of the King James, updated the personal pronouns and all that stuff. But essentially is the King James with updated English, and then uh, you have all sorts of other things. The New American Standard Bible, um, gosh, we could go on and on. If you look on Bible, how many of you use Bible Gateway ever? You ever use that online? And if you click on translations, you just get a list that you can scroll through. There's just translation after translation. So how do you pick the right one? The, The most important issue for me is how close does the translation of the Bible take me to the original Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic? Because if we're working backwards, we're we're trying to get to what we are affirming in our doctrinal statements is that we believe that all the actual words of the original manuscripts in Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic are inspired by God. And so I want to get as close as I possibly can to the very words that God inspired through the writers of the Bible. So that's the first big issue for me. I'm giving, this is opinion, by the way. This is, this is how I address the issue. I want to get as close as I can there because I want to know what God said. And any time you take a translation and you start moving from word to word or word for word to thought for thought, then you're 
placing yourself at the mercy of the people who are interpreting the Scripture. So I want a translation of the Bible. I don't want a Bible that interprets the Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic for me. I just want them to translate it for me. Does that make sense? I just want the raw data. That's all I want. I don't want the opinions of the committee that translated it. I don't want anything like now. Now, that being said, there's no English Bible that does that perfectly because there are some words in Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek that just don't work in English. They don't. And so you have to try through the English language to understand the words and then render it or translate it into English. So not every Bible can just give you an English word for a Greek word and just sort of march through the text that way. So you can't get a perfect mirror of the original languages, but you can get pretty doggone close. And I'll tell you what I think are the three best that do that. The, the, the no doubt about it, every time consensus winner for being the most literal translation of the Bible is the New American Standard Bible. Without a doubt, NASB is the most literal translation of the Bible. It, it will get you the closest to the original languages that you can get from any Bible. The problem is, and I love the NASB, and I would use the NASB if anyone used it. Like, do you use it? Good for you. Anybody else? All right, so two, two of you. I would use it. You, you know, I would use it if I thought that enough people were using it that I wouldn't be, it wouldn't become clunky for the congregation when I read from the New Testament or, or otherwise. Because it, and I think the reason why most people don't use it is because, now if you guys have been using it for a while, how long have you been using it, Eddie? My mother gave it to me in 1982. All right, so that's, your, that's how you hear the Bible. How long have you been using it? You've been using it since the 70s? How long have you? Less than a year. It's getting ready to come out with a new revision in 2020, by the way. The, um, which is nothing to be afraid of. It's good. They're just updating some English. Um, so, John, it's pretty new for you, but it's not new for you guys. Right? So it just sounds like the Bible to you. But for everybody else, it's a little difficult to get used to because they've done their best just to take a word for a word and just get them in there as best they can, and even to follow the grammar in the Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic as close as they could without destroying the English. And all that, does, all that results in a translation that reads a little bit clunkier than others. Now, if you're used to it, it probably feels fine. You probably don't notice that. But if you're not used to it, and I would tell all of you, go get an NASB, and you started reading it, you'd probably go, this feels hard to read. It feels a little bit difficult. So... That's the only reason I don't use it. I use it extensively in my study. I never preach from a passage of Scripture that I haven't looked at in the NASB. And the reason is because I don't speak Greek. And so I need to get as close as I can to the original, and that's the one that I do it in. Now, the other one that I think is, is wonderful is the New King James Version. Not many people use that anymore. But I think it's a really good translation because I think the King James Version is a tremendous translation of the Bible. The problem with the King James Version is... We just don't talk like that anymore. And I know that there are people who will say, well, the King James Version has been proven that eight-year-olds can understand it as good as 40-year-olds. I don't believe that for a second. I just don't. We don't talk like that. We don't use that language. 
I struggle to read from it. I struggle if I'm trying to read it out loud. I, I feel like an, an eight-year-old again. I just It's difficult for me. But the New King James Version did a wonderful job of updating all of that English, and that's a great translation. In the New King James Version, for those of you who really want to study your Bibles, if you get a New King James Version, you'll find that one of the things that they did is that they included every single textual variant in the footnotes of the text. It's like 80,000 footnotes in the New King James Version. So you see, if there's a textual variant there, they've noted it for you. If there's something questionable there, they've noted it for you. They've given you all the different manuscript evidence. It's all there in the notes. So that's a good Bible just to have, just so you know. It also does things like the New American Standard does, where, where it um, makes sure to differentiate Old Testament passages and New. I think the NASB does that in capital letters in the New Testament. Is that right? They give you capital, if you see capital letters in the New Testament, that means that it's an Old Testament passage showing up in the New Testament. New King James does similar things. New King James also adds italics to words that aren't there in the Greek. So if it's not there and you're reading from the New King James Version, you see a word in italics, it means the translators added that word in there to help you. But they want you to know it's not, it's not originally there. All right, so then the, the other Bible that obviously that we use around here a lot is the ESV which is, I think, a really, really good translation. And I've settled on that recently just because I started using the NASB. I found that not enough people were using it. I felt like I was becoming difficult to follow. So I went to the ESV because I think more of you use the ESV. Uh, how many of you use the ESV in here? A lot of you. So, And that's becoming the most, one of the most popular modern translations. And it's a good literal translation of the Bible. And it tries to do its best to be literal without being wooden. So it's trying to get really close, but be really readable at the same time. So it's sort of following the translation philosophy of the NASB, but it's just trying to give you some help along the way with the English, so it's a little bit more readable. 